Allison, let's let's uh, let's yes. start the podcast, right? <laughs> Even though we kind of already started it, but Allison, and how do I say your last name? I always just say Depauly. Depauly, Allison Depauly. Even though it's two words and it doesn't quite look like it sounds, it's Allison Depauly. Which is that? That's Italian, yes. correct? So okay. if you were Italian, you would say you know Depauly, De but you are not. I am so. not. Definitely not Italian. Well, I, I told the story before. My wife is actually of Italian descent, and when they came over, they changed the last name to Americanize it, obviously, just to, I don't, you know, hopefully avoid discrimination or not seem as Italian as they were. But it was Zodarelli got changed to Arell, A-E-R-L-L, which sounds a little bit more American. Now she's a Smith, which is like, I feel bad for her because she lost <laughs> some of her identity. American. Yeah. Um, Megan, Megan Chiarello was on the uh, podcast a few months ago, and I, 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 would, I wanted to say Chiarello, so I'll say Dia Paoli, or Dia Paoli. <laughs> but anyways, I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you for traveling up. I know you had a reason to be here already, but I'm glad we were able to make it work uh, up from San Antonio, right? So that's that's home base for you, correct? Home base is San Antonio, yes. Cool. How long have you been in San Antonio? 20 years. 20 years. You're not a born and raised Texan. I am not a born and raised Texan. Where, where did you grow up or where were you born? I grew up in Pennsylvania and I, uh, after, went to school in Washington, D.C., went to work for my dad who owned a boutique benefits firm in South Florida and um, ended up in San Antonio after I got married. Okay, so so you went D.C. or Pennsylvania, D.C., Florida, Texas. So mm -hmm. when you came to Texas, were you reluctant to, to come to Texas? Uh, okay, so tell me about why, why just because of a perception maybe on the outside looking in of what Texas was or what? So um, only child Jewish girl. Okay. So let's set the stage sure. there. okay. And my father did his basic training in San Antonio. And when I said we were moving to San Antonio, he was like, you cannot move to San Antonio. They don't have buildings taller than four stories. <laughs> and surprisingly, San Antonio has changed. Okay. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a metropolis now. I, 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 like I said, I go there uh, every once in a while to see, see my good buddy. And it's like, I didn't realize how big San Antonio yes. was. When I grew up. It was very small. It wasn't that big. We'd go down once a year maybe for a soccer tournament and yep. see the Alamo, but now it's just this massive city, and it's like you feel almost overwhelmed. I mean, it's kind of similar to, I guess, a Houston or a Dallas these days, right? Um, it's still a big, small town. Okay. And so, but there's a million people coming to San Antonio. I'm not really sure where they're all going to go, but they're coming. When you say they're coming, what's what do you mean they're the population growth in San Antonio between 2020 and 2024 will be an additional million people. Because the San Antonio of, metro area, just because it's growing so fast. Okay, okay. Wow, a million new people in four years? A million years? new people in 20 years. 20 years, excuse me. Okay, okay. That's a, a million new people. Still a significant growth. I mean, yes. obviously we're getting transplants here from from elsewhere in California, yep. and you know, name it, and immigration and things like that being close to the border, but that's a massive population growth in a short period of time. Yes, it, it is huge. They're double-deckering one of the roads, and I'm thinking, <laughs> Oh, I'm really glad I don't live out there. Because that works so well in Austin, right? Let's do it in San uh, yeah, Antonio. Exactly. Jeez. <laughs> so I know we already got into the backstory, but I do want to want to understand. Uh, you know, some of your. You know, you talked about where you grew up and being a Jewish girl, being a transplant in Texas. <laughs> I did see though you studied Hebrew. I wanted to ask you about that because that's unique. So that was a year of like uh, intensive study, or what was that? It wasn't a year of intensive study. It was a semester abroad. Okay. So I went to American University in Washington D.C. and one of the study abroad programs was a semester at Hebrew University in Israel. Okay. And so I spent uh, six months in Israel in 1988, which maybe wasn't the best time to spend okay. six months in Israel. Okay. But spent six months in Israel and then spent a summer in Paris yes. going to the Sorbonne. So that was a wonderful year. 
I can imagine. Um, I learned all kinds of things, mostly non-education related. Sure. And um, almost stayed in Paris. And um, only child Jewish girl called my father and said, Dad, I'm going to stay. And he said, your credit card gets cut off on the yeah, 15th yeah. of the month and you'll be home. <laughs> oh, no, you're not going to stay. Yeah. Yes. What it, was it? Was there a, um, I don't want to pry too much, was it a love interest that was keeping it, it you? Wasn't. Okay, it wasn't. Okay. Well, it was a love interest with Paris. It's still yes. my favorite place in the world. Well, so. it's such a romantic city. I mean, just I, yes. I've never gone. My wife uh, wants to go. I think she has been in her life when she was younger, but she just, that's like on her top five of you like, let's go her. to Paris. I know I should take There's a. There's probably an expense associated yes, with yes, it. And yes, there's a place yes. she wants to go to Hawaii. There's a bunch of places she wants to go. And having little ones in tow right now, I'm not sure I want to do a European trip anytime soon. You should take them with you. I, uh, we will, but I, I want to take them. I started them. traveling when I was two. You did? Mm -hmm. Do you have memories? Now, I was one. I mean, there was just me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when I was two. Do you have memories? that I, I'm curious if you can remember. I don't think from when I was two, but from when I was three and four, yes. Okay. Well, my daughter is going to be five in February. My son's 15 months, and that's what we're kind of weighing is like, how old do they need to be that if we go spend all this money and take them and deal with the stress of tugging some kids along, are they going to remember it, or is it going to be like something that predates their memory? They'll learn things that they will never learn anything, anywhere else. Uh, that's I want to do it. Like I'm going to do it, we're, and I'll take. I'm going to treat my wife to that <laughs> at some point. But tell me, did you did you walk away from that six months of studying Hebrew? Were you actually studying the language, or was it just so a Hebrew I went universe? to school? Okay. Um, I went to school, so I studied Hebrew. I studied. Um, Can you read it? Speak it? Like anymore? Or? So I used to be able to speak a reasonable conversational Hebrew, okay. but I haven't done that in about 30 years. Mm. So no. Yes. Um, but I studied all kinds of things. I traveled all over Israel. I went to Egypt. I traveled in, all over Europe and during that time and, and previously too, but it was um, a very good exercise in uh, people love their children and are basically good mm -hmm. and everywhere people yeah. love their children and are basically good and will not harm you. And you know, don't be stupid, but it's okay. Like yeah. just because they're not like you, it's okay. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's, I've, I've had not a chance to study abroad, but I've had some soccer travel that took me to so England you, and Italy and stopped in Belgium. I think we had a, a played a German team. I mean, so you got some exposure, yes. obviously it's all revolved around a game. I didn't have a, a semester over there. Or but, anything but you like get that. a good sense of no, it. No, and right? it was great. It's just like you, as a kid, you're just wide eyed and Cultural differences, driving on the different side of the road, different language, yes. trying to navigate, you know, like a train, things like that, things that we don't get to do much here that, you know, you just go, wow, this is amazing to do, see something completely different than I'm yep. accustomed to. So I love that. And I'm sure you did as well. When you did, when you got the uh, answer from your father that you're not staying in Paris, <laughs> um, which I don't blame him, right? Like were, were you, what, what uh, year of school was that? Were you a sophomore or junior? No, I was, a, I was going into my senior year. Okay. So I spent half of my junior year abroad. And I spent uh, my senior year in the United States. Okay, fair enough. What well, if you were going to stay in Paris? What did you think you were going to do? Like, did you have an idea of what you would make a life of yourself? I, there? I would have gone back to school. Okay. I would have uh, learned to speak actual French rather mm -hmm. than conversational French. And um, I, I don't know what I would have done. And maybe I wouldn't have stayed forever. But um, it is quite a charming place. I, I can I can believe that. So you come back, you finish out your studies. Yep. Uh, what was your degree in? I forget. My degree was in international relations. Okay. 
And did you have this idea, having grown up with a father in a boutique agency, that you wanted to be in benefits? Like No. Okay. okay. My father is a serial entrepreneur. So when I was little, he built modular homes. And he was in the real estate business and the retail business. And, you know, had, he, was a, he was a serial entrepreneur. So um, employee benefits was something he came to later in life and is what he retired from. I see. So I graduated from college in a not great economy economy and I ended up working at an insurance agency and then I went home and worked for my parents for a while and then moved to Texas. Okay. And so uh, I saw, you know, kind of career-wise, financial services, it looked like insurance, a kind of a combination of those things. Employee benefits is really what it is. So like, what was your first experience with it and exposure to it? Did you enjoy it or was it just a job? Tell me about that. You know, I think it was just a job for a little bit, but um, we did self-funding 30 years ago, right? So that's what I learned. And it was like, this was this fully insured stuff over here. And then there was self-funding where you manage the risk and you could do this and you could do that. And, you know, I remember taking phone calls from employers who were like, hey, we want to do this. You think we can do that? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Okay. And there was an an analysis and a calculation and and making changes and adding things that had real impact to people. Mm -hmm. And, um, as I worked, I worked with, for my parents for about eight years, and during that time is is when fully insured, for many reasons, became more predominant. So our cases were moving to fully insured. Okay. And when I moved to Texas, I thought, well, I don't know anybody here, and I don't like this, so I'm not going to do it. Okay. And I ended up in the voluntary space because I could come and go as I pleased. And I saw the San Antonio market like I saw the Florida market 10 years earlier, and I knew how to deal with that because the family business also did Aflac for about 25 other brokers in South Florida. Okay. And so I knew how to make that work. And so voluntary space is something I, I know not a lot about, but I, that's where you spent the majority of your career yes. before Altique was, was Aflac. So voluntary benefits, you know, kind of tell me what they used to be like and then what I kind of know what they are today, but like selling 15 years ago or 20 years ago in San Antonio for Aflac, what, what was that world like? So there was a, um, the carrier I, I had represented was not always considered to be broker friendly. And I think mm. that that was more an educational and, and skill set problem than that the products themselves were not broker friendly. Um, the indiv- they was also all individual product at the time. Okay. So that, that's a different animal than so much of the group product that you see today. Individual product is it belongs to the individual and the contractual relationship is between the individual and the carrier. The only thing the employer is doing is billing or taking the payroll deduction and remitting it to the, to the carrier. Okay. So that was, I knew how to make that work and I knew how easily a problem in the voluntary side can blow up a case. Mm -hmm. So I knew how to manage that and sidestep that. So I I had a pretty big um, broker block of business and then as time comes goes on, you know, things change and you need to grow and develop. And I thought that I would like to be um, an enrollment firm. I hated that. <laughs> Did that for a little bit, hated it. And I thought, well, you know, there's Was so it just things. not for you or what was it too transactional? Like what? what no, was- um, I was accountable for an awful lot, but not responsible for very much. Okay. So I was always waiting on other people and depending on different things and you know, as the central hub, if anything goes wrong, it's my fault, but I can't control this, I can't control this, and I can't control this over here. So, I, you know, at some point I was just like, Neh. um, 
So I found my way to the next gen group and I thought, well, I could do this. Mm -hmm. I know how to do this. And so I have this really weird skill set where I know how to make a self-funded plan work. I have a very good understanding of how stop loss works and where the risks are and what kind of contracts you need and what the TPA needs to do and not needs to do and how benefits are impacted. You know, didn't know some factual things, right? But you can learn those things, sure right? Sure, Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and also had a book full of um, broker business and didn't want to do the reputational damage of going after all that business. So kind of left that business alone okay. and started from scratch. So was it motivated more out of interest and passion than it was financial wanting to exit the, the voluntary space? So I wanted to exit the voluntary you space. You just wanted to get out. I yeah, just yeah. wanted to get out of the voluntary space. But I was looking around going, you know, and I was I was was have always been so fortunate that I've had really lovely clients. Mm -hmm. I was going, you know, I could fix that 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I know how to fix that. I know how to fix this thing here. And I thought, well, why don't you just go fix it? And, um, you know, if we're going to fix this health and care mess, we're going to fix it one employer at a time. And it's very satisfying to be able to help persons, humans, access care, make sure they get high quality care mm -hmm. with the happy side effect of budgetary control and turning benefits back into something that is a recruiting retention tool. I have a, a client who we've just decreased their their deductible from 4000 to 2000 and without a big negative impact because their claims have been running so mm -hmm. well because we've been managing the claims. Yeah. Well, that inverts the mind because, you know, so many brokers, especially if you get stuck on the fully insured hamster wheel or consultants brokers, whatever yep. you're called, all they know how to do, unfortunately, because all they can do in that space is, well, let's just raise the deductible or let's shift costs over to the employee. Let's strip out benefits in order to control costs because they're not really able to address the claim side, which is where Correct. you can really control the spend is how do you tackle the claims, which not even inadvertently, intentionally can allow you to enrich the benefits at less or no additional Correct. cost, right? Correct. And so that's fun. Yes, that's yeah, fun. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what it says that I think that's fun, but that to me, that's fun, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I negotiated a claim down from $595,000 to one hundred and five, and then because of the way the claim was processed, we had the entire claim picked up by the stop-loss carrier. I'm not sure the stop-loss carrier is thrilled, but because it was a favor to us because of how, because of the co way the contract was written and when the bill was received. Yeah. But they paid it in the prior year as a favor to me. Which, well, what did that accomplish? So I love them. <laughs> of course. Yeah, that, you can't tell me that they don't make business decisions sometimes in a gray area to pick up a claim because yep. of what credibility and trust that builds with you over the long haul. I absolutely. absolutely. I see that happen all the time. Absolutely. Save that particular employer $105,000. Yeah. I mean, so that employer is loyal to me. Yes. You know, nobody else has done that for them. Well, and there's an expectation the stop loss carrier is going to, you're going to give them favorability in the future, yep. right? And, and I have. Yeah, and you should. Like, that's what a relationship. Yes. That's what I think I always got stressed out is when stop loss gets commoditized, especially when I was in the GA space, unfortunately, sometimes you had to rate shop and you had to try to be competitive, but it gets commoditized so much that it strips out the relation aspect of, hey, they're picking up your risk. The risk that they have on their plate potentially yep. is infinite, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you have to understand that if there's not a partnership um, created there, 
then why should they do something for you as an employer exactly. if you're just going to pick up and run the next renewal because they're two points higher than their competition? So Correct. I think it's a two-way street. And I'm happy to hear that you guys were able to come to an amenable solution that benefits everybody. And I think they'll benefit as well. And they have, they have benefited. And, you know, and I also try not to take advantage of that, right? Like contracts are contracts and you do, you know. Well, so I, you know, it sounds like though, in order to get back in the space and I want to talk about the genesis of Altique, how it was started. I am saying Altique correctly, right? Okay. So, um, but you, you had built a, uh, uh, enough cachet from, you know, what you were able to do, your relationships you forged over a decade and a half. So like, that's a really good position to be in as an entrepreneur is that, you know, if I go start something on my own, I have a pretty good sense that there's quite a few people that are going to follow me. Right. Or t- but maybe. I started from scratch. You did start from scratch. So you I weren't did. able to leverage those existing relationships. I oh, didn't, okay. Okay. You know, I live in a, you know, San Antonio, there's 2 million people in San Antonio, right? It's still a really big, small town. Okay. And I wasn't going to do the reputational damage. I see. Of, you know, pulling all of that business. And, you know, you can think that's right or wrong. That was my decision. I live in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a couple of brokers say, look, I, d- I don't care what you do. You're going to take care of these. And I have a few cases that the broker's like... You're just gonna do it. Yeah. I don't care what you do. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, but I don't. I said I know enough now to be stupid. We don't care. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so so you made the decision to essentially start from scratch. Then, yep. yeah, from a reputational standpoint, which I applaud. So tell me about standing this thing up. Like, what was it like early on? Um, I had a lot of help. Okay. I I had a lot, a lot of help. I still had revenue. So from a revenue perspective, we were okay for a while. Um, but we, we don't have huge numbers of clients. We're very fortunate that we add the clients we need every year, but we run a small, highly leveraged firm and we do something very specific. Not everybody wants what we do, Okay. right? So we are going to contain your costs. We're going to help people get access to high quality care, and we're going to make sure that you pay a fair price for it. For some organizations, they don't want to bother. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's work. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a different kind of work and it's a year round work. Yes. But for other organizations, those that manage their risk everywhere else, they're like, we want that. Mm. So what's the proverbial? What's the guy that has the show Dirty Jobs? Um, micro. Of, yeah. Micro. It's <laughs> a, it's the white collar version Dirty of jobs. Dirty Jobs. Right. You're doing this. The self-funding stuff. Yep. That's a lot more uh, administratively intense sometimes the knowledge that you have to bring to the table obviously is a lot different. And then, like you said, it's a year round endeavor. It's not like, Hey, see an next renewal and I'll I'll negotiate on your behalf. So there's a lot of folks that don't want to do it. Although I think the marketplace is dictating that more and more people have to figure it out. Right. I think it is. And I think we're headed in that direction. And I think if you don't learn those skills, you're going to get left behind. I talk to more and more employers all the time who we know that there's a problem here. We don't know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. We don't think that this is right. This doesn't make sense. This is what we think is happening. And I got to tell you, they're not often wrong about what is happening. They may be a little bit off, but they're not wrong. And they don't like it and they can't afford it. And they can't, you know, this is this healthcare budget has turned into this thing that nobody likes. The CFO doesn't like it. The HR doesn't like it. The people that use it don't mm-hmm. like it. Mm-hmm. And something has to be done. But you really have to take people where they are, right? Like you can't just 
come in and take somebody from fully insured to a hundred percent reference-based pricing yeah. plan because you can, but you won't have that client very long. Well, that's like, that's the example I always use of like, you don't have to go to zero to a hundred and the exact example, fully insured to fully reference-based pricing, yeah. like in one year is probably too not much. the best for everybody. It is probably too much. There's baby steps you can take. Yep. And I think if you're always moving directionally speaking in the right direction, that's a good thing. And you do it at the pace that the employer is okay with. Correct. Although you tell them though, hey, here's what we should probably do in year two and three and four. And this is what you're potentially leaving on the table if we don't do it now. As yep. long as you're okay with that, then and we're okay. Yeah. So Altique though, the name, is it alternative boutique? Is it a combination? Like where did Altique <laughs> come from? Like I was trying to think, um, think about this. So I'm going to give a, a shout out to Steve Conco. You know who he is, right? I, I know the name. Why do I know that? He name? does branding for insurance Okay, agencies, boutique, why, yeah. independently owned agencies. Okay. And, and they do many things, but they have a specialty in that. And um, he does website design and branding and marketing and the whole nine yards. Cool. And I've known him for a long time. And and the um, name of, of my LLC was DePauli Professional Services. And, you know, that just, you know, that was fine as an enrollment firm, but uh, I didn't like that. And so what was I going to do? Finally, I called him and said, you got to find me a new name. He said, well, you need a new website? I said, I don't need a new website. I need a new name. I really like my color palette. I really like so my logo. So you had the same color palette already? Okay. I really like my logo. I want you to keep my logo. Blah, blah, blah. And he, so he said, oh, all right. He said, I don't even know how to charge you for that. I'm like, well, just figure it out. <laughs> and um, so he, he said, all right. I talked to him for not very long. He said, I'm going to send you a brief email. I need you to respond to the email. And really, it was very simple. I need seven or eight, one to three word phrases that explain who you are and, and who your firm is. Okay. And then let me give me a little bit and I'll get back to you. Okay. So he took a couple weeks and got back to me and um, gave me three choices. Altique was one. And um, I said, how did you come up with that? And he gave me this whole long song and dance story. And I was like, okay, I'm taking that one. He said, but I'm sorry, I have to change your logo too because your old logo is DP. It was like kind of a chain bracelet looking thing, okay. which was very suitable. And he said, so we're going to change your logo too. And he he said, so here's your new logo. <laughs> I was like, okay. So you, so you weren't resistant. Like it sounds like he was probably worried you were going to yeah. not like it. Okay. So Alti, I mean, it's a cool name. I was thinking Alter, Alt Boutique. Like yes, When, I, when yeah. I saw it. Yeah. I saw alternative and boutique, and that is exactly what we are. And that, no, it's it's it, that's I, that's the first thing that came to mind. Yep. So kudos to him for coming up with something that's appropriate, right? And it makes sense for what you do. But you know, like as you're starting this business, as you're kind of figuring out how to go from the voluntary space to this, what you want to do, which is a self-funded, really unique boutique style. I'm sure there's some lessons learned, right? There's some things that didn't go so well early yes. on or mistake, you know, mistakes, failures, whatever you want to call them. I'm sure you learned from them. But tell me if you have any stories you might want to share of like a, a good lesson learned uh, running a business. So the biggest lesson I have learned is that you really have to take people where they are. You know, I'm one of these people. Change. <laughs> and apparently not all people are like this. Yes. And a lot of people are not like that. We found that out like ourselves. That. So yeah, yeah, totally yes. get that. So um, had to really step back and say, okay, we've had a long conversation about where you want to go. Now let's talk about how long it's going to take you to get here. So while I am an advisor and I do have my own book of business, I also do some consulting. Okay. And I have a, a consulting client in San Antonio. They've been my client for about four years. And I'm like, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. It took me three years to get them away from their 
carrier. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, ah. And we were set to go in um, for January 1 of 2021. And they were like, we cannot. We have tortured people. Mm-hmm. We cannot. Mm-hmm. This year, we have gotten them from their ASO contract to something that we can get a little bit better data. Okay. And we have gotten them to a reasonable PBM. Um, but I had many, 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 many conversations. And like many employers, they are terrified of changing their network. Hmm. Terrified. Which yeah, I kind of shake my head. Um, I, I do too. But, you know, like I maybe understand, help me understand their perspective of why there's fear of the, the network. Have they been trained by their they carriers been, to, they, to think they, that way? Or? They have been trained. Okay. They also have a very... Um, they have a very interesting workforce. They have a very highly educated PhD, MD component. Mm. Okay. And then they have a much lower skilled component. Okay. And then some white collar kind of middle management stuff in the middle, right? So these people are hard to find. These people, they need to keep. Okay. So they don't want to cause any disturbance. And you know, as an industry, what a great job we have done of training people that healthcare is this little plastic card. Yes, yes. Well, Blue Crosses does, not not to single them out, but I mean, you drive around Texas, there's billboards with somebody smiling, holding holding their Blue Cross card. You know, so like... Good for them for branding them. That ha, ha, have you that ever way. tried to take anybody's Blue Cross card away? Well, I see. I've never been a consultant. Some <laughs> people like some people perceive that I've done consulting. I've worked for an agency that was a self-funding consultant, right. but myself, I've never been responsible for a group. So I can only imagine, and I have heard what it would be like to try to do that. Yes. So, and 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 I don't mean to criticize Blue Cross. No, no, I mean, neither but, do I. Yeah. But that you know that if you want that arrangement, they do a very good job. And if you want something different, that's not the place for you. Mm-hmm. So I think as an employer, you need to decide what do you want. I mean, there is no perfect thing, right? So what set of problems do you want to have? Yep. And so, so when you're walking a group through these decision making processes, like tell me kind of what their their mindset is like, because you're you're presumably offering some fairly, to them, radical ideas versus maybe what they've been presented in the past. Yes. So are you doing a lot of assurance at that point that it's going to work? Or tell, tell me their mindset. I do a lot of assurance that it's going to work. And I am a very big believer in one step at a time, maybe two. Now, having said that, I have a client that I just made about five steps with, uh-huh. but that's their nature. Yep. Yep. And uh, I've also slowed, I've learned to slow people down. Sometimes um, I did also have a very interesting conversation with um, somebody and, and got a little aggravated. And I was like, I don't give a flip what your discount is. I want to know what the price is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the CFO was like. <laughs> They're probably not used to having somebody go to bat for them like that. Um, but that's I think that's why you've carved out your space. I mean, my, my father is in the construction business, for example. Mm-hmm. He couldn't work for anybody else. He got to the point where he couldn't work for anybody else because he wanted to do yep. it his way. And he will be the first to tell you that his way sometimes is not everybody else's way. And he's ruffled some feathers. And that's okay. And he lives with that, right? He lives with yep. the results of that. Not everybody likes him and that's okay. Um, but you also go, all right, what do I want to be and what do I want to do? And if I don't want to be everything to everyone, I want to be a lot of things to a fewer amount of people. Yes. Then I'm going to be that because that's who I am. And I, that, that, the authenticity of that, I think, is why you get and keep clients, right? I, I think so. And I think... Um as somebody who either owns a business or if you work for an agency, you 
you, the, the individual person, cannot be all things to all people mm -hmm. because then you're nothing to no one. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard lesson to learn. And that's a hard lesson to learn when you need to grow your business right. and somebody is dropped in front of you who may not be the right client. And um, sometimes that happens. Yeah. Well, and, I, the, and then you need to decide. I was just, I have experienced that myself here sure. at PlanSite, unfortunately, which is like you want to sell to everybody, right? As especially we're trying to grow this thing. Yep. And you're going, ah, that one's not even going to work. They're, they're wanting a contract. And I'm like, ah. I got to find a way to make like it, it not work right now because it's not, it's not going to be good for us, which means it's not, not going to be, be good, good for them. them. Yeah. And so like, it's hard to say no sometimes to a sale um, when you're motivated by that, but yep. it also, you go, all right, well, the result of that sale is I can't support it appropriately. I'm not right for them. And, or it's going to be a short-term sale because somebody's going to pull the plug. One of, one of us is going to pull out of it at some Correct. point. And that's okay. But it's hard to get used to that being okay. You yes. Know? And I've also learned that if you really want somebody as a client, tell them that. Yeah. You know, you are a fit for what we do. This is what we can do for you. And um, be radically honest. Okay. I like that. So, so you don't think there's too much of honest to a fault like do you think there's a okay well don't be unkind uh, right? no, no but i mean like honest to a fault like being just laying everything out there and being fully fully transparent i I'd, i think there's not enough of that in our industry I, you know i watched for a very long time you know being in the voluntary side and having a book that was almost exclusively broker driven i've been in all of those meetings and i've been in the rooms and i've watched the conversations and i'm just be like Oh, yeah, sure, we can do that. No, mm -hmm. you really can't do that. Oh, yeah, oh. sure, we can. No, you really can't. Or, yes, you can do that, but there's a consequence, and you're not saying what the consequence yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, 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 you're not so painting the full picture. You're not painting the full picture. And, you know, I used to, I had a sales manager who would be like, why do you have to tell everybody what's wrong with us first? And I'm like, well, are you complaining? Yeah. Um, but I think that you... You establish credibility because you're not presenting something as there is nothing that is perfect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're not presenting something that is perfect that it isn't. And um, you can manage expectations much more effectively. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, a client that we had taken over and we took it over mid month and they renewed on the first of the month. And I'm like, and they're like, well, we're going to do it. I'm like, okay, we can do that. And this is going to be sausage making. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, okay. And then there was a problem. And I said, do you remember what I said about sausage making? <laughs> and it was like, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you were right. Okay. Yeah, and then we should have listened to you. But I mean, it's. And, well, sometimes you can't, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's just going to be sausage making. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Well, I like what you said a minute ago about um, telling a prospect that you're there the right fit. Like I actually had a, a sale a few months ago where I remembered specifically, Hey, saying you guys are the right profile for us. You, like mm -hmm. what you do, your size, the number of clients, the, the blend of fully insured and self-funded, you are an appropriate, like, I just want you to know, like we perceive you as a great fit. So if yep. you're interested in doing business with us, we want to do business with you. And I remember specifically saying that. And then in the, in the moment thinking, we, should I have said that? Is that appropriate? But it ended up being so. right. Like, but I think it, it lets them know that, hey, like I'm telling you the truth and you, I am pursuing you as a prospect because 
you are actually a fit for what we do. And that's Correct. a good thing, right? And when you find that marriage of the prospect that ultimately is appropriate, then that's, those are the ones you want to go after and you want to let them know that they're right. So yes. I, I'm going to, I'm going to echo your sentiment on that. <laughs> yes. um, so let's shift gears a little bit because you have a podcast uh, of your own that you've recently started called Raising the Bar, right? Did I get that correct? Yep. Um, so origins of that, is this uh, the feeling we need to do a podcast? We want to do a podcast. Tell me, tell me how that came about. So we have a, a really wonderful group of clients. And um, I think when you are, when you understand who, who you are and who you work well with, then you can focus your efforts. And I think that the 100 to 500 life space is incredibly underserved in our industry. Particularly in Texas, there is entirely too much fully insured or ASO business at that size. Mm -hmm. And I talk to people all the time that are terrified about any sort of risk or any, you know, whatever. And I also, as I interact, and most of these businesses are privately owned. And maybe it's maybe it's the founder, maybe it's the second generation, maybe it's the third generation. So if I come in and, and look at a budget, right, and look at the plan and look at where kind of the problems are and say, well, we think we can find $50,000 here. Or if I can get enough data to do an analysis and say, we found 50, we found 75, we found 300, you know, that's their money. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not the company's money. That's not, you know, a bonus they're going to get. If they want to go buy a Tesla or a boat, they can do that. <laughs> and if they want to reinvest in their employees, they can do that. Mm -hmm. The people that seem to find their way to me will typically reinvest that into their companies, which I like. So their employees, they do something, right, for their employees or their business or whatever. They're not necessarily going out to buy a Tesla. But nothing wrong if they do. Yeah, Tesla's their cool. money. Yeah, it's their money. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and, and I think that we've all forgotten that, right? It's their money. Yep. And um, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to said, nobody's ever talked to me like this before. Um, so the conversations are different, but they all want to know what everybody else is doing. Mm, mm. So I thought, well, why not tell them? Yeah. So we, you know, we talk to CEOs, sometimes CFOs. Um, I've had Steve Watson on, who is the best blend of CFO and CHRO ever, yeah. Yeah. and um, talk about what people are doing. I mean, I, I've, I have somebody in, in my orbit who has 35% of his workforce has been with him for more than 20 years. He has 350 employees. Everybody wants to know how to do that. Mm -hmm. They've done some not outlandish but creative things consistently over time to keep people there, wanting to be there. Mm -hmm. You know. We have different marketing people. We have different, you know, we have all kinds of businesses and they all work a little bit differently. And people are interested in hearing what they're doing. And, you know, they may not replicate it, but they may take it and tweak it and make it their own. Okay. So that's how we, that's why we started that. So are you, is it, are you talking to actual clients or prospects some, or a blend or what? A blend. Okay. Um, clients, prospects, some business owners that I know that are not a good fit for us, but do really interesting things. Um, we've found that businesses that SaaS businesses mm -hmm. um, where uh, financial advisor firms, they may not be the best fit for us because they want as rich benefits as possible. They don't want to hear a peep out of anybody and they don't care what it costs. Okay. We can help them, but we can't really do anything different than anybody else. So they tend not to be attracted to us. Mm -hmm. um, but they sometimes do really interesting things, right? So we've had a whole host of guests on 
that are in my orbit. And as we grow, then more of them come on. And there, some of them are hysterical. Well, I was going to say, I, I love the idea of having the employer perspective. I had one, a colleague of mine, a, a guy I played soccer with as well, was a client at one point, um, was the a CFO at the organization, or excuse me, director of finance, but um, I think he's CFO now. Um, I wanted to get the perspective of the employer because they often yep. get lost in the equation. Now, you have all these vendors and all these consultants telling you what they can do, and the carriers are promising the world. It's like, what about the person that has to actually sit down and make a decision out of the things that are presented to them yep. that impact their workforce and their budget? And so I, I think that's really cool that you're getting those types of folks to come on and actually share their story. Yes. All right. Do you find folks are, like, worried uh, or reluctant to, to open up the, the business a little bit and talk about it? So they don't talk about confidential things. We do have conversations. Are you sure you want me to talk about this? This mm -hmm. is really boring. I'm like, I know it's not really boring. It's okay. <laughs> um, so I'll, for a lot of them, maybe they've done one podcast or maybe they've done none. Um, but once, you know, they understand that, you know, there's this, I'm not the press, mm -hmm. right? I, there's no gotcha. There's no, there is just a conversation. And I also know they are interested in meeting each other. So I connect them to each other as well. Okay. And um, that seems to be very successful. Yeah. So, because again, they all want to know what they're doing, right? Well, what is, why is that working so well? Well, that's one of the things that I find fascinating about the captive space is that there seems to be a camaraderie among folks that are within a captive cell or so, whether they're homogenous or heterogeneous captive doesn't matter, but they're willing to share. It's like, hey, you're an employer. You're over here. I'm over here. We don't quite do the same thing sometimes, but hey, what are you doing? Like, what, yep. what's your best practice, you know? But, but, but the captives that work well, uh -huh. they, they may be homogenous. They may be heterogeneous, right? But the fish are all swimming in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And if the fish are not swimming in the right direction, then this group over here will benefit unduly and this group will be penalized. Exactly. So you have to make sure that, you know, all the fish are swimming in the right direction that they understand. So that conversation just facilitates that. Well, that's why I like that environment that requires the skin yep. to be in the game. And we're all, you said, swimming the same direction, rowing in the same direction, yep. whatever you want to say. But it's like there's a willingness because of the environment that's set up yep. to share those best practices, yes. which is not always the case. And I, it sounds like you're able to foster some of that discussion on your podcast as well, which yep. is super cool. So how, how long have you been, have you been doing it? Uh, about three and a half months now. Cool. And is this a passion project for you? Is it something just I to really augment? Like it. uh, I really like it. It's enjoyable, isn't it? It's fun. It's yeah. really fun. Yeah, it is. So it's it's very fun. And I've been able to do it not just with people local to San Antonio, but with people in different parts of the country mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, I, I have a, a, a friend who's a movie producer. Well, you know, if there's anybody that knows how to manage a project, it's a movie producer. Of course, yeah. You know, um, so different kinds of, of people doing different kind of, you know, I have a, um, a client and a friend who owns a marketing company and he, his internal mantra is woo, not poo. <laughs> so literally, you know, we talked about woo, not poo and how they do that internally and externally. And, okay. and while that may not be very new, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people in my orbit have never framed that as woo, not poo. I've never in my life heard of woo, not poo. I'm not even sure I quite understand what woo, not poo means. So could you explain that for me? <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> I think it's funny, but I don't know what it, what it means exactly. So it, it means that you should woo your customer. Okay. You know, you should deliver outstanding results and you should be concerned about them. And you should also deliver outstanding results to your team and you should be concerned about your team and you should show your team that you care about them. And they will then in turn show the clients that you care about them. 
And they're also, that particular firm is very particular about the clients it takes. Okay. And we talked a bit about how important that is and about how important it is to deal with all of your resources and steward them all appropriately. And your resources are financial, they're relational, they're, it's kept, they're human, they're, you know, whatever they are, and how you kind of manage all of that together. Okay. Well, I, I like that not only have you done the podcast, but you have your, uh, you know, your kind of, I don't know what you want to say. The other content you do, it's, <laughs> it's outstanding. And Thank I've been, you. I've drooled over it sometimes of the, 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 production quality. I love it. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. I, I am too. Is that your TV producer friend that's doing these? No. Okay. That, okay. That is um, a lovely young man who would be insulted if I called him that, who I met randomly who did a video for my own workspace. Mm. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this and I just can't, I've done a few of my own and I'm not going to release them because I don't like the production quality and blah, 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 blah. So we did about 60 of them. 60? Okay. 60. Jeez. And we batched them, right? Yeah, we yeah, do four or five at a yeah. time. And there literally was a studio in my office uh -huh. and there were cameras and there's you know, there were three cameras and there were all of these lights and there were three microphones and I was mic'd and I mean, it was, I'm like, well, look, I, the neighbors were like, what are you doing? Yeah, are you shooting a movie over there? What yeah. Are you doing? yeah, what are you doing in there? And um, I, it's horrifying to watch yourself on camera. I know you know that. You get used to it though. You, I can you tell you, and, you know, yes. I've discovered, and I, I've shared this before. I, I did, I trained as an actor after college and I've, I've done the on-camera scene study. I never felt comfortable when I was acting, yeah. but I do feel comfortable when I'm just being myself on camera. Like I don't cringe when I see myself just being myself, but you, there still is a little bit of like, is that what I sound like? Is that what I look like? You know, yeah, you see, but yes. once you get over that, you realize it's not that big a deal. Um, so, so was there a, a kind of a, a period of time where you had to get used to it? I had what? to get used to okay. it. The, fir the first, you know, couple of batches were, mm -hmm. And, uh, but I, as I got more comfortable with it, so two things happened with having somebody come in, the production quality was way better. And, um, I am a stickler for lighting. And, um, so all of those things were taken care of. The sound was good. The lighting mm -hmm. was good. The, the captions were good. The, the intro, the outro, the, you know, all the stuff mm -hmm. was good. And I had somebody in the room with me. Mm -hmm. And that made a huge difference. And what made were they asking questions off camera? Nope. No. He was okay. just walking around looking at whatever. But I, I was, and I would talk to him. Uh -huh. And um, when I, he'd be checking something, whatever, and I'd say something, and he'd be go, hmm? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's it. Yeah. Right. That that's the thing. Yeah. And um, so that was very helpful to me. And I'm. I don't have a huge fan base, I don't, whatever, but we use those videos all the time and they're really good at, we tried to pick like, okay, we're gonna explain this thing and we're gonna explain this thing. And people are like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, what I love about it is it is at the level, and I said I was drooling over the production quality. I knew you had multiple cameras, like, because <laughs> they were switching angles and stuff like yep. that. But I'm like, this could be a commercial on a national, like, TV show, right? Like, this could play for 30 seconds. It was of that quality. Well, and so, thank you. As somebody I will that, let him know. No, it, it, it really was. And, and it was, it made it stand out to me. And I realized there's a, in our space, there's a, 
the potential, we talked about this before the show, of overproducing something. Yep. Uh, obviously, there's a cost associated with it. But for me, when I look at your videos in your nuggets of 60 seconds or 90 seconds, and you want to just clearly explain one thing or drive it towards a longer form of conversation, it absolutely does its job. It causes me to stop and look at and watch. And so that's the whole intent is of this ocean of potential um content out there mm -hmm. is somebody stopping and actually looking at yours are they engaging with yours is it stimulating a thought or an outreach afterwards and i presume that's probably the case with your content and that's it is that's why you do it right at the end of the day you're yes. running a business it's to draw attention to your business positive yes. attention and i think it probably does that and right? you know we did that for a little bit over a year and i i think there is something to knowing when you should start something and when you should stop something okay you know that is not an inexpensive proposition to to produce so, and, and it was very fairly priced, beyond fairly priced. Um, but we have enough now. Yeah. Well, how many, do you know how many hours you produce to get those 60 uh, some odd segments? So we would spend three or four hours a batch and shoot four or five at a time. Okay. So I have a few that we've not released yet. They're, they're basically a how to build the perfect health plan. There's seven mm. of them cool. and they're short. They're two, they're three to four minutes a piece, but we haven't released those yet. We're gonna release those as a as a kind of a course cool. kind of yeah. block thing. And I haven't figured out what to do with that yet, but we shot all of those in one day. But other than that, we shot um, four or five at a time, typically four. And what I noticed is that the ones in the beginning were longer than the ones towards the end. Was that intentional, you think? It wasn't intentional, but I think that as you do that, you get better at framing what you want to say and you get a little bit more concise. Well, you get more concise. And I think I've discovered, you know, as I look at posts and things that I put out on in the ether and in uh, LinkedIn and YouTube and stuff, brevity is really, really crucial. Um, you know, even though some of my best performing videos were those longer form stop loss, eight, 10 minute videos. Yep. Nowadays, unless you're teaching something that requires a long form uh, attention is span, shorter is absolutely better. Um, and, and I think shorter and then drive to something that gives a fuller explanation. Yes. yes. You know, because we you can't explain what we do in 20 or 30 or, or even a minute or five. Right. You need a little bit longer time frame to give a full picture of what we do, but you have to get somebody engaged with you, right? And yeah. that should happen in 30 seconds. I agree with you. And I'm trying to get better at it every day. And again, I think yours are fantastic. I think so you do great. Thank you. Uh, thank you. But this is, you know, I'm learning in real time, <laughs> just kind of like you are, I think a little bit. But um, I, I appreciate that our industry is becoming more open and receptive to utilizing that medium. I feel like there's a mindset shift of how to sell, how to prospect. And it's like, why everybody's got, you know, we've got these iPhones right here. Everybody's got one of these yep. in their pocket and you, you can shoot 4k video on there. You can you get absolutely a, can. a lav mic for 20 bucks that has a wire on it and sounds pretty darn good for 15, 20 bucks. And yep. so it's like, there is no impediment or barrier to entry to start creating content except for your willingness to do so or your ego, uh, you know, preventing you from doing so. You right? know, you really just have to get over yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I look at some of those old videos and I'm like, oh. Okay. <laughs> you get over yourself and you also go, well, like, why would anybody listen to me? But it's like, well, why not? Like, I mean, like, you, why not do it? What's the worst that's going to happen is people ignore it. Maybe. I mean, it's, I don't think it's that big a deal. I used to be a little bit more fearful of putting something out there. And now mm -hmm. I kind of know what to do, what not to do. And I'm like, why not? I mean, what, what, what's going to happen? 
I, I think, nobody's going to come eat you. No, nobody's going to eat you. Nobody's going to make fun of you. Maybe silently they might curse your name, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and if they don't like you, they don't like you at the end of the day too. But I think if you come to the table with who you are, authentically what you believe, what's wrong with that? I, I agree with that. And I think you you have to be okay with people not liking you because there oh, are, yeah. amazingly, people that do not like me. And, you know, really, well, not I'm okay you, with that. Me, maybe, but not you. Not everybody likes you. <laughs> no. But, no, I think it's true. Yeah. You just have to be okay with it. And, and it's okay. You know, like, other people like you. Get over yourself. Well, and I think I think uh, Chris Fisher was at, you know, talked about, he's mm-hmm. just here today. He's like, sometimes that segments the marketplace in a good way. You find the people that really like you and the people that don't like you rather than this kind of lukewarm response to who you are and what you do or you're non-memorable is kind of how, is, how he positioned it, yes. right? And I think it's better to have that bisection of like people that do and don't like yep. you but have a, a feeling either way rather than just who? 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 Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's. That's the worst probably outcome is like the indifference. Yes, I, um, I would agree with that as well. So let's, I know you got to get on the road and I know you got a five hour drive ahead of you. So <laughs> let's wrap you up. We got a few minutes left. Future of industry broadly. We talked about what you've been doing over the last, you know, couple decades of, of running a business or running through Affleck and doing voluntary stuff. What about the future of, of insurance and self-funding at large? What do you think is going to happen there? So I think that all things kind of happen in a cycle, right? And it used to be that, Many employers over 100 lives were self-funded. Now we can do great things for 25, 50, 60 employees, right? I think that there were some structural changes that happened in the late 90s that sort of drove people back to the fully insured market that was less risky. And then over time, we're back into the market where it is better to control your risk, right? It's better to take on and understand what's going on and offer something useful and, and something that's affordable. So I think that more employers are going to head into the self-funded direction. I also think that the market will kind of bifurcate into, well, we're fully insured and we're not going to deal with that and we're good with it. And this this group of people that needs and needs to manage risk better has much more works on thinner margin you know manufacturers work on thin margin right Mm -hmm. is going to grow what is also growing is the war for talent okay you know we've just had the great resignation (laughs) yeah and you know now we're going to have to deal with with the results of that right so i have employers that are reducing deductibles they're reducing costs they're trying to figure out how to make their benefits plan, a recruiting and a retention tool again, because it's, you know, I'm sorry, a $6,500 deductible is just not. not yeah. So I see more of that. Okay. I also see, particularly for smaller employers, as, as ICRAs and QSERAs grow, as that becomes more of an, an accepted process, that they will, there are more employers will choose that strategy and they will get out of the benefits business entirely. Mm. They, will, they will make a financial contribution but, you know, the employee can get whatever plan they want. Okay. Um, I think that the way that ICRAs and QSERAs are set up right now, that... Can you briefly it, explain those? Because I don't touch that space very much. Sorry. Like, and, and I don't want to gloss over it in case somebody was listening. So an ICRA is an individual uh, contribution HRA. Okay. So if you've got somebody, if, you, if as an employer, you don't want to offer a group plan, you can send people to the individual marketplace, they can buy whatever they want, mm-hmm. and you make X dollar contribution, you decide what that contribution is. Okay. A QSERA is a qualified spousal HRA. Ah. If we could merge these two things together, then I think you'd see some radical change there. 
but I think that defined contribution market is going to grow. Okay. Particularly for smaller employers. And that makes sense, right? Because then you offload that line item, or at least the risk associated with it. You can it take becomes, your cost. Yeah, you contain your cost. That makes sense, right? I'm sure there's limitations to when and how you can do that, though. There, okay. there are. But let's say that I have five employees and two get their coverage from a spouse and two need coverage and I'm covered on my own spouse. You know, that's an awful mess for a group plan, right? And then it changes every year and nobody likes the plan because the employer can only afford X. Yeah. So here you can say, okay, you know, I'm going to take that 250 or 300 or even more if you want contribution that I would make to a group plan, I'm going to give it to you as long as you have individual coverage. I have given you a benefit and you have whatever you want and it gets any complaining out of the employer's office. That makes sense. I I, I can see where that would be. uh, And and, and it's great for like uh, businesses with different classes of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've where you need to class benefits, you can you can class a contribution, you can class uh, you can age banded in to a certain extent so you can do a whole host of things with it when but it's only for individual coverage it doesn't it doesn't work for people that have coverage with their spouse so you have to kind of negotiate all of that if this could be better if the ICRA and Cusera could take the next evolutionary steps I think you'd see a lot more adoption you see a lot particularly smaller employers get out of the group health business doesn't have anything to do with the dental and the vision and the short term and the, all the other stuff, but it, at least get out of that and get people something that is useful for them or coverage under a spouse or whatever it is. Okay. So, I, I, But I see a lot more thoughtfulness in how we're going to manage this because the cost has become so high. And having said that, almost all of our clients say to me something like, look, we've got this plan. We spend this much money. We're okay to spend this much money. Could it be useful? Nobody likes it. We spend a lot of time, right? We spend Mm -hmm. a lot of time to make this work. Nobody likes it. Everybody complains. So could it be better? Could we spend less money? And I think you're going to hear that conversation more as well. And there are more and more tools to do that. But you have to be willing to engage with the tools. Yeah. You have to be willing to engage a consultant that can help you in that space, right, yes. too, which obviously, you know, that's where Altique would enter, enter the fray. Um, and I like you're the first person to bring up the, was it the Icaras and the Cuseras, what you call it? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, shame on me for not knowing much about that space. Well, but that's not your space. It's not my space, but it's also, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that to the table as a as an alternative option for those smaller groups. And that maybe is, mm-hmm. uh, I, I will keep an eye out for that now if I hear it come up in passing or if I see that becoming more of a prevalent option um, in some of these smaller groups that yep. we're seeing. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that the most important thing that I've learned over the time that I've been in the, in the benefits business is that we all seem to have forgotten who the user is. And, you know, users have jobs and users have families and users are as busy as you and I are. Mm-hmm. And they don't pay attention in an enrollment meeting and they have 29 other things that they need to do. So... You have to communicate with people, one, like they're human beings, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And two, on a fairly regular basis. And I think the advisor that kind of does an open enrollment meeting and goes away is going to have a problem because any of the things that I do cannot be communicated one time. Yeah. They cannot. Well, the advisor that has an open enrollment and goes away might see their client's Go away. Yeah, possibly. So last thing, may I ask, what's the best way to get a hold of you if anybody's listening to this and wants to reach out? So I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, yep. And I, our website is uh, Altique, A-L-T-I-Q-E, 
Know you. Know you. Yep, I learned that when I <laughs> typed it up. Yeah. <laughs> com. And so we're pretty reachable. Um, we spent a lot of time on LinkedIn. Um, our website is has contact form for us, phone numbers, all that kind mm-hmm. of good stuff. Um, I'll talk to anybody and help anybody I can. Well, I appreciate that. And I obviously will tag all these things in the post when it comes time thank to you. release. So so hopefully we'll help to bring some prospects or some business your way as well. Thank you. But thank you so much for the time. Thank you for making it uh, you know, a part of your schedule. I wish you a, a happy and safe and quick travel back to San Antonio. You too. And you let me, let me know next time you're in Dallas and we'll get together again. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, Allison. Bye.